have your Bible with you this morning or your smartphone will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We've been in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians for the last several weeks, um, working our way through this letter of Paul, written from Ephesus to the church in Corinth. Um, he spent about 18 months in Corinth, one of his longer stays, and this letter is now some three years after that. Um, it's, it's one of a series of letters that he writes back to the church in Corinth. Um, that Paul, we see that as he planted churches and as he set up elders and as he left these places, that he continued to, to revisit as often as possible to write letters, to, to give pastoral care, guidance, um, just kind of apostolic leadership of these places so that the church in Corinth got a lot of attention. Um, if you've been with us, we've seen already that there's a lot of issue in the church, the church in Corinth. Um, it's it's going to get continue to, to kind of dive into some of their behavioral issues. Um, and so where, where I really want us to start this morning before we look at 1 Corinthians 6 is this, and it, it's the idea that I think often in the church we have viewed the gospel as, um, as a finish line, right? That if you believe the gospel, you're now saved, you're going to go to heaven, and so that's kind of the finish line, and then we just we figure things out the rest of our way, right? We just kind of coast, and, and we move on from the gospel. And yet what we see the, the, in Scripture is this, is that gospel is not the finish line, it's the starting point, right? Is that as we trust the Lord for salvation, as we follow Him, that it begins then to change the, the whole flow of our life, that we are now following Him, and He's on the throne of our heart, that He's the one guiding us. And so it has implications for life, right? It has implications for the way that we live as husbands and as wives. It's the way that it has implications for the way that we interact with our bosses and those who do us wrong. It has implications for the way we handle our neighbors and our parenting. It has implications for the way we spend our money and the way that we, we think about politics and where we put our hope. All of these things have gospel implications. And so the gospel isn't simply this set of information that I believe so that one day I'll spend time in heaven, right? But it's a radical transformation of our life. And so what Paul does is he's writing back to the church in Corinth, and he's saying, look, you are supposed to be the temple, right? This, this spiritual temple in this city revealing the nature, the image, the character of God because he is transforming you and has saved you. And your behavior is abhorrent. And it doesn't reflect the character or the image of God at all. And it's not enough that you know the right things. It has to actually transform your life. It has implications for the way that we live. And most often, those expectations, right, tell us that there is a standard. That there is an expectation and it runs contrary to the world's wisdom. The more often than not, what the gospel is calling us to is going to be at odds with what the world is calling us to, right? And in those moments, right, it reveals, do you trust the Lord? Do you trust Jesus? Because if you do, right, then you'll, you'll follow what he's calling you to do. You'll trust that versus what the rest of the world is doing, right? It's a marker of salvation, of, of the fact of, are we following? Are we trusting? And so what Paul has done so far in Corinthians, he says, look, you view me as a fool, you think I'm weak? You think I'm not impressive? He goes, but I came to you as a servant. In, in Corinth, they, they loved 
um, orators who had great style and pomp, and they were able to, to wow them and to bring attention to themselves. And Paul was not that. And so he's saying, look, you think that I'm a fool and that you're weak. You're boasting in your wisdom. You think spiritually that you have arrived. And so last week, what we saw in chapter 5 was this. He goes, you think you're wise, and yet you have this horrible sin going on in your church, and you're just letting it, letting it happen. He's like, that's not wisdom. We, we deal with it. And so we got into the, the conversation of judging. And what we realized out of 1 Corinthians 5 was this, that Paul says, look, within the church, for those who would call themselves brothers or sisters in Christ, that there is judgment, right? We do look at the fruit of someone's life. We don't judge their motives, but we do judge their behavior and their actions because there is an expectation, there is a standard. But Paul will also say this, but when it comes to those who do not yet follow Christ, we do not judge them, right? Like they're not transformed by the Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit living within them. They're not following Jesus. And so he says, look, they will have judgment by God. So we don't judge them. So we, we, we pursue sinners, we allow those who are wrapped up in sin to be a part of what's going on, to be a part of our lives, because we believe the gospel actually does transform them, that it actually does have implications. But for the believer who would want to trounce on the name of Jesus and flaunt their sin, he says, then you remove them, right? right? And so what Paul is doing is he's saying, you think you're wise, and you have this sin that is rampant, and it's going to destroy all of you. And what we're going to see this morning is he continues this same argument with a different perspective in chapter 6, continuing to say, you think you're wise, you're boasting, and you think I'm a fool. Let me give you another example of why you should not be boasting and why you're not as wise as you believe you are. This is chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But a brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So you can see that Paul is uh, he's a little hot under the collar, right? That it's just like he's, he's just, the letter is just continuing to ramp up, that Paul is extraordinarily upset with what's going on here. And what we see that is happening is this, is that a civil case has emerged between two believers in the church. And so it's important for us to note that it is a civil case. It's not a criminal case. I think often the church can be accused of wanting to do their own investigations and not wanting things to get out, not to sully the name of Jesus. We've seen that a lot, um, even just this year with a lot of things coming out where the church has tried to hold things. When I say church, I mean like the capital C, the, the universal church has tried to keep things under wraps. And what has happened is atrocities have happened, right? Things that were horrific and criminal that should have been prosecuted and they weren't. 
Paul is not talking about that. He's not talking about injustices being perpetrated. He's talking about a civil case. This is the idea of, of property, the idea of money, of maybe someone being personally upset or defrauded. And so what's going on is that it's not a criminal situation, but it's a civil situation. And a believer is coming up against another believer with this civil dispute. And he says, you're taking it, we see in verse 1, to court before judges who don't believe. They're unbelievers. And he goes, so what we need to understand a little bit is what the court system was like in Rome and specifically in Corinth, right? And so the court system, the the ultimate aim was to be um, a fair law for all people at all times. That was their goal. It just wasn't that. So the courts were open to bribes. Um, so one philosopher said, if you, want, if you had enough money, you would never be convicted of a crime in, in this time in ancient Rome, right? In this era. That it was open to, to, to bribery. They were partial, extraordinarily partial to status and to power. And so if you had influence, then you could influence the courts. That equality before the law was not obtainable. It was not offered to all. It was not available to all. To simply be in the court system was a very expensive thing. And so you were already kind of behind the eight ball if you were not wealthy. And then if you're going up against someone who has status or wealth, you were going to lose. It was not about right and wrong. It was not about justice. It was about power and who could influence the courts the most. So what it did is it reinforced class distinctions, that there was a hierarchy and that there were folks who were not, the law just wasn't for them. And so the courts were, were perverse, and they were wicked. They were swayed by fear and by relationships. And so what we see now is we have a civil court case, not a criminal case, and it's going before a court system that has a very different value system than the church is supposed to have. And so what is now going is, and Paul says not only that, but it's believer versus believer. And so the way courts were set up was it was no holds barred no restraint, and you were going after a personal victory, and the way that you would do that, it was unbridled character assassination, right? And so if I'm in court against you, I'm going to do everything I can to insult you, to rip your reputation apart, to any known associates, any known witnesses, your family. I'm looking to absolutely blackball and destroy you, because then maybe I'll win. So Paul's saying, you're walking into courts that are not ruled not guided by the same value system that we have, by the same transformative power of the Spirit. And then the very nature of the court system is unjust. And not only that, the way that you win is that you destroy someone for your own personal gain and victory. Right? And so I think when we initially read through 1 Corinthians 6, you're probably thinking of the American court system, right? And you're like, well, lawsuits, is it that big a deal? Because we're a very lawsuit-happy society. You know what we see is Paul saying, you are going before those who do not love the Lord, asking for them to guide, and they don't even have godly wisdom to judge, and then you are destroying one another. Like you're ripping one another apart. So if you want to think about what, is it, what, what value is there in being judged by someone with the same value system, right? right? If the courts are valuing power and status and wealth, Paul's already said, look, we're fools before the world, right? We're humble. We're servants, right? Like the Lord has redeemed and rescued and saved, and so we don't need clout in this world, 
right? That we, we have come in humility because the Lord has come in humility. So I think about a different value system, maybe in this way. I think about my daughter, as I think about Carson, and that someday there's going to be, right, probably a, a, a guy that comes and pursues her. And what I want her to value, what I want her to see, is I want her to value faithfulness, right? I want her to value um, steadiness. I want her to value a man who loves the Lord and who's willing to mark his success by godly wisdom, not by what the world would say is success, right? Power at all costs, money at all costs, name and reputation, even if you have to run people over, they just got in your way. Right? Like, so there's a, we have a, diff, I have a different value system than what the world would call success. And so that might mean that, a, that the man who pursues her is a faithful and good and godly man, and the world may never know his name, and he may never have anything to like hold up and triumph, and that is still successful. Right? And so it's a different value system. And so Paul's saying, you're going before the courts who are valuing money and power and prestige and your ability to destroy another fellow human. And he said, and yet you're claiming Christ, who has come in humility, who says that we are to serve one another and to love one another, that we are supposed to be the temple of God to the, to the city of Corinth. And he says, and yet you are taking your business that's not criminal, it's civil, before them. So he says, like, even the one who wins, you're losing. There's nothing gained from this because you are forcing the church to pick sides, right? If it's two believers in the church, then people are going to say, well, I kind of think the defendant, or I kind of think the plaintiff, right? And now the church is, is on each side, and, and, you, and they're watching each other be destroyed. That sin is being committed as, as gossip, and his language would be tearing them down. He says, no one wins in this situation. No one wins. All right. So this is kind of the scene that's happened. So what are the issues here? Like, why is Paul so upset? Just because they lack self-awareness. Right? Like that earlier, he says, look, in chapter 5, he says, you let sin like, kind of run rampant in the church. And he says, and you don't judge it rightly. He says, and now what you're doing in chapter 6 is this. You're letting outsiders who don't have a voice in the church judge what are going on between two believers. He says, you think you're wise and you're getting it all wrong. You've misunderstood how to handle one another and you've misunderstood how to deal with the court system. You think you're wise, you're not. You're not. And he says he wants their identity to matter. Look here in verse 2. He says to them, do you not know that the saints, meaning the church, will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? So how much more than the matters pertaining to this life? And so what he's saying is like, do you, you don't see your own identity right. And so he says, the church is going to judge the world, it's going to judge angels. All right, you're going, wait a second, where do we find that in Scripture? So, in Daniel 7.22, we see this idea of, of, of the holy ones judging alongside with God. You'll remember in Matthew, as Jesus talks to his disciples, he'll say, there will, there will one day be a day where you'll sit and judge the 12 tribes with me. We see in Jude 14 and 15, we see in Revelation 2. Here's the thing. Scripture does not then lay out what does it mean that we judge the nations or that we judge 
the angels, most likely meaning the fallen angels, the wicked ones who um, rebelled against God. Scripture doesn't lay out exactly what Paul is referring to here in any place, because that's not the point. The point isn't to lay out this theology of why are we going to judge angels. What he's saying is this, if we have any role in the end of this thing, right, in the end of human history, that we're going to reign with God forever. If we're going to have a role in that, in all of human history, you can't figure something out between each other. He's like, this is trivial compared to the fact that you're going to be reigning with the holy God of the universe for all eternity. Like, that that's who you are, and that's what your expectation is going to be, and that's what your role is going to be. And he says, and you need to go to a court case before an unbelieving judge who has no access to the same godly wisdom that you have to the Spirit of God. He says, and you call yourselves wise. Paul is absolutely shaming them. Absolutely. He's saying, you, you have completely missed this. You don't know who you are. Why can you not handle this? So there's three primary worldviews in the world. Um, we see in, in South America and parts of Africa kind of a, a fear and power dynamic where those who hold power instill fear. We see in our culture in the West, the one that we're most familiar with is right and wrong, right? It's why our court systems are judged by um, you either broke the law or you didn't. But in the Middle East, um, in places in Southeast Asia, some other cultures, the, the, the guiding worldview is honor and shame. And so the question isn't, did you do something wrong? It's, did you bring shame? And the way that you restore the lack of shame is by bringing in honor. And so you'll hear of things in, in the news sometimes about honor killings, right? Where someone will actually, in the Middle East, they will they'll kill or, or remove someone from their family who has brought shame into their family. And what they're saying is the only way we can have honor again is to remove the shame. And in our Western mindset, we would say that's wrong, right? So because we, we view it very differently. And they're not worried about right and wrong as much as they are about honor and shame. Well, Paul is writing to an honor and shame culture. And so he's doing this. He is publicly, communally shaming them. He's not calling out the two believers here and saying, y'all are the ones who have a civil case. He's saying, y'all have allowed it. Y'all know better than this. Look at this. He, he says very clearly, right, like he's, he's asking these rhetorical questions over and over again. And then in verse 5, he says this, I say this to your shame. In case it wasn't clear, I am shaming you, right? And and, in a culture where we value self-esteem so much, we're like, oh, Paul, you can't shame people. That's wrong, right? But Paul is shaming them in order for them to see the error in their way so that they would be restored to return to an honorable way of living, because Paul had an expectation as, as a good Jew who knew his Old Testament, he had an expectation of what a judge should look like. Listen to this. This is Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. It says, I charged, and I charged your judges at that time. And here was the charge given to the judges. Here are the cases between your brothers. Judge righteously between a man and his brother or even the foreigner, the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment 
is God's. Right? It sounds like the exact opposite of the, the, the judges and the courts in Corinth. If we, if we turn over to Deuteronomy 18, or sorry, uh, Deuteronomy 16, beginning in verse 18, we see a little more. So you shall appoint judges and officials in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You will not accept a bribe, for the bribe blinds the eyes of the wise, and it subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God has given you. And so this was the expectation of the court system, right? Would be that, that there would be righteous judging. Why? Because we have a righteous judge, right? If, if God is a judge and he judges fairly and righteously, who is not swayed by influence and power and status and wealth and these type of things, he's saying then that's what justice should look like. If we are to reflect to the world, that's what it should look like. And he says, and you think you're wise, and you're going to those who look exactly opposite of what the expectation is. You're not honoring the Lord in this at all, and you're making like the church look bad. You're making Jesus look bad because you say you're transformed and you're destroying one another. The second is this. It's not just that they lacked self-awareness. It's that they did not understand the perception that was being given, right? I hope as you're thinking through this, as you're hearing this, that maybe the idea of Jesus comes to mind here, that he was innocent and falsely accused, wrongly accused, given a sham of a trial, beaten, mocked, humiliated, right? He understands what it's like to be wronged by the court systems, that we have an example of one who went silent before his accusers, knowing that he was justified and that he was innocent, that he could have got out of it in any moment. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to what Peter says. This is verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme, to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Listen, go down to verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and you suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Right? So he says, like, we as the church, we follow a wisdom that comes from God and not from man. And the wisdom that we follow says that our rescuer, our Savior, suffered unjustly. How did he do it? Because he trusted the one who would ultimately judge rightly. 
right? That he saw that there was something more at play than what was going on simply in his trial, in his court system, in his day. That God was ultimately in control. And so if we are called to be a reflection of the image of God in our society, this is the example we follow. The one who suffered innocently because he trusted the God who would judge justly. Right? Now listen, this should start to like create some tension and some anxiety because we live in a culture that says, get yours. And if someone wrongs you, wrong them back. Use whatever means you have to be justified because you you don't suffer, they suffer. Right? They did you dirty. They did you wrong. Use the courts. If, right? It's like, make sure that your name is, is right, that your reputation is not sullied. Make sure that no one allows you to suffer unjustly. And so even to the point when sometimes when we're suffering rightly, <laughs> that we're looking for a way to make sure that people know, well, we didn't really deserve it. And that's not the example that Christ gives, who went innocent and silent before his accusers. What Paul is saying is, church, we have a chance to actually live out the foolish, the seemingly foolish wisdom of God in this world, right? This is one of those opportunities to say, do we really believe that God is just? And do we really believe that in the end, He's in control? Because if we believe what happens in the end is real and true and that one day it will happen, then it has implications for today. My reputation can be sullied, and I can suffer unjustly, and I can be mocked and humiliated and ridiculed because there will be a day where I will be vindicated, where the, where the faithful God who, who is just in His judgment will judge, right? So Paul already, has already said this to me. He says, God will judge the unbelievers. He will. He's going to do that. And he says, we have been judged and found innocent in Christ. And so do we believe that there's a day where we will sit with God in heaven as he handles human history and creation that doesn't love or trust or follow him? So he says, like, we can trust this. We can live and believe this because God is a just judge. Because we have a role in it. Right? Because we're going to be vindicated and all things are going to be revealed. So for eternity, the truth will be known. It may be hidden for a little bit, but it will be known. And so it's why he tells them this in 1 Corinthians 6, right? He says this. In verse 7, so why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He's like, why not suffer a little bit? Because that actually puts you in the footsteps of Jesus, which is a really good place to be rather than going out into the court systems and making a mockery of what you say you believe. You will be judged justly. You will be vindicated. It will be revealed. You are an heir of all of it. You're going to inherit all of it. And so if you lose a little money, you lose a little land, you're getting it all back because it all belongs to God. And church, he's also saying this. Jesus has been there. He's suffered this and he understands He's not asking us to do something that he hasn't done for us. And so in the midst of disagreements, he's saying, yeah, I've been wrongly accused too. I've been humiliated as well. 
right? He's calling the church to live by the wisdom of God, which is eternal and will appear foolish to the world. Rather than living by the wisdom of the world, which will fade away and will be shown to be lacking for all eternity, right? It's, it's calling us to trust Him in the midst of this, right? So that when asked, okay, so why did you not go after them? Why did you not vindicate yourself? And you get an opportunity to explain why. You get a chance to share the gospel that you have a God who has vindicated you when you were guilty because Jesus died to satisfy the wrath of God, was resurrected. Like you have a chance now to share the gospel because you're living a wisdom that doesn't make sense to the world, that it doesn't make sense. What this also does when we lay down our right to go at it, to, to, to justify ourselves, is it's helping us see that, that our roots don't need to be too deep here, that we are sojourners, as Peter says in First Peter, traveling, headed somewhere. And when we begin to look at it as mine, and I've got to have it, and I've got to own it, and if you take it from me, then I've got to fight to get it back and get a little more, right? He's like, you're forgetting that we're headed somewhere. And where we're headed is going to, what we have now is going to pale in comparison because God has it all. The fact is, is that litigation amongst family, even wills, things like that, they change people, right? And it breaks things. So even the Roman courts didn't like having brother versus brother. They didn't want family coming in and litigating against one another because they knew the permanent effect that it would have. So I want us to end with just one example of how this might work in the church today. I think we, um, that often the church has this expectation when, when people come into it that things are going to be comfortable and ease, um, easy and there won't be conflict. And if there is, then we're, we're out of here, right? We bounce. And so we would rather there be some things maybe sometimes swept under the rug or this false view of perfect relationships. The fact is, um, I did a wedding last night, right? It was two sinners getting married. There's going to be conflict because there's two sinners. So if you look around the room here, there's more than two of us, and we're sinners. And we are being transformed by God, and yet we are already completely saved, and we are not yet, right, completely sanctified, (laughs) And so there's going to be some conflict. You're going to disagree on some things. People are going to say things in gospel community that you're going to scratch your head at and say, you're a fool, right? Like those things are going to happen. There will be those moments. And I think what has happened often in in churches, it's like, oh, if I don't agree with everything, oh, if someone hurts me, then it's easier just to leave. Let's just be gone. But the church is called a family, And what Paul is going to continue to beat into us in 1 Corinthians is this. It's not only are we a family, we're actually a body, right? And so if my hand offends me, I don't spite the rest of my body by removing my hand. I deal with it. And what good families do is they don't sweep things under the rug. They don't ignore it so that it'll go away or we'll pretend like that big elephant's not in here, right, For, for all the awkward years to come. But because there's connected relationships, and because there's love, and because there's trust, then we can approach it head on. So an example of this, even in my own marriage, would be there are times where Carmen and I are really frustrated with one another, and we have disagreements. 
And, and I've literally sat on the couch thinking, I don't, want to, I don't want to make this right. I don't want to. But it's going to be. Like, I know that I'm not going anywhere. I know she's not going anywhere. So it's like, well, I suffer in the meantime. We might as well get, you know, get it over with and deal with it because we're going to be okay tomorrow, right? And because of that assuredness of relationship, then we approach the hard conversation, figure out what's there, rip it out, deal with it, and move on because that's what families do. And if the church is a family, right, then one of the ways that we live by godly wisdom and not worldly wisdom is that we do not run from conflict, that we deal with it. Because we understand that it's going to make deeper and better relationships because we can be reconciled. And so our American independence is going to like kind of scoff at this and go, you can't tell me what to do. I'll like... You can't judge me. You want someone else to have a word into my relationships or the way that I'm making decisions, the way that I'm thinking, and Paul and Jesus are going to say yes because we're a family, and we've been, we've been made a body. Do you notice that Paul doesn't, like, have a little addendum to the letter that says, by the way, I want you to talk to Joe and Bill about their argument and their civil case. He says it to the church. He says, because all of you have a role to play in this. How, how come someone wasn't able to come in with the wisdom of God and like, right, bring some understanding and some, some agreement to this, to deal with it? Why are you going to outside sources? He calls them brothers over and over again. Look at verse 6. He, he says, brothers shouldn't be doing this. Church, that is a family, right? If we believe this, then we're going to be willing to work out conflict, then we're going to be willing to own sin. We're going to be willing to apologize and say, I'm sorry that I wronged you. I'm sorry that that this has got to this place. And then we're going to allow others, if we can't get to that place between two of us, then we're going to bring others in, right? Because we're going to trust the wisdom of God. And that the best thing and the right thing is for reconciliation to occur. That God pursued us as we were rebels fleeing from Him, that we would pursue reconciliation in the same way. And not say things like, this is hard, so I'm going to leave. Right? Because in good families, right, families don't leave. They work it out. They figure it out. And we want to be a good and healthy family. We want to reconcile. We want to deal. So it means that we don't want to sweep things under the rug. If there's an issue, let's deal with it. And let's not be upset when someone says, there's an issue, right? Because we want to be holy, healthy, and obedient, believing that the gospel actually has implications and it actually transforms us, and that reconciliation and peace is possible. Because here's the thing, and here's where we'll end. Through the perfect life, the obedient death, and the resurrection of Jesus, you have been made at peace with God. And that foolish gospel, right, This is God died to save you, yes, right? It's actually not foolish. It's beautiful and it's wise. And we are at peace with God because of it. So can we trust that that wisdom and that same living Jesus, right, who's alive today can help us be at peace with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? That that would be our hope and our desire and our expectation. Paul is going to continue to go after conflict in the church to look at specific sins, to say, because I want you to be unified so that the world would look and say, that's different. I'm attracted to that. Why? Because we're reflecting the very image of God who's faithful and just and judging, 
who brings hope and peace and reconciliation rather than personal victories at the expense of others. Right? Like, that's who our Jesus is. Let's pray.